keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome to the show. I'm Graham Richardson. I'm here for this week. Glad to be here from 12 to 2 um, on News Talk Today. As you'll know, if you're a regular listener of this program, uh, Evan Solomon has moved on. We wish him nothing but the best. A great send-off for him next week, or last week. And uh, the new show, of course, uh, News Talk Today, uh, right here. Same numbers to text us in 71010. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, breaking news, Hockey Canada, finally, finally, the board and the president a few moments ago announced they are resigning. Uh, they are leaving the organization. There will be an interim board in place and a transition plan and all sorts of things will happen that um, should have happened months and months ago. The reason I say that is I, I it, it it's not about it's not about trying to exact a pound of flesh from an organization that uh, did something incredibly badly, and and I just want to I, I I think a key turning point should have been a key moment should have been when it was revealed that they had a fund that partially was there to pay out and keep quiet accusations of sexual assault and pay out settlements that had not been disclosed to the people who funded it. Hundreds of thousands of parents across the country. Um, Girls hockey is exploding in popularity. And if I, you know, I have two sons who played minor hockey and what's a, what's a parent of a daughter playing hockey to think about that? And I just think it's been, we've been over this many, many times about how poorly they handled this, but I just don't know how you can come back from that clear fact. They hit it. They built this fund up. Nobody knew about it until these horrendous allegations hit Hockey Canada and hit the world junior team from the 2018 situation in London. So I don't know how you show up in parliament under subpoena in front of ministers and funders and all of the public and say, nothing to see here, which is what they did initially, remember. Initially, they they basically didn't answer anything. They thought that they could just do the hockey thing. And I'll get to that in a moment. And then it got worse and worse and worse. And I just think about these, these, these are explosive, um, sport-altering, culture-altering revelations that are hitting the national game. The notion that many people in towns that host OHL or CHL or Western Hockey League teams kind of shrug at the notion of group sex with players. This happens all the time. It's always been this way. And like, I don't know that, but apparently in for some in the hockey world, these allegations did not shock them. The fact that you are facing this and that you think you can hang on by shopping some phrases out there and then, and then as the final nail going on the offensive in front of parliament again, suggesting that it's everywhere and you can't just blame hockey and the media got it wrong and the politicians are grandstanding. And when I, when I say they did the hockey thing, look, 
You spend any time around the high levels of this sport and there are rankings and hierarchy and who gets to walk the walk and who who's on who's on a different level, okay? You you get up into the higher levels of minor hockey and you've get you get superstar players or parents or coaches that have massive success with a with a group of young players, then they get brought up to the next tier. Like Hockey Canada is the top of the top, right? This organization basically picks Team Canada from thousands of players, essentially, from hundreds of teams, from, you know, they, they, to, to suggest that they have power is an understatement and a misunderstanding of what it takes for players and their families to get to that level. Not only tens of thousands of dollars a year, in some cases, minor hockey, if you want to aspire to be on hockey radars, hockey Canada's radar, you are talking 15 to 20 to $25,000 a year on a kid. And that's, you know, that's when, when I say that that's hockey fees, that's travel, that's equipment, that's training, that's all of it. And nine times out of 10, that kid's not going to be good enough. Right? So then the kids who do get through the families who do get through and these, these, these players were kids. They were just 18. You know, if you are of that level, you are, a, you are accorded a certain amount of power inside small towns, inside teams, inside organizations with high powered agents, knowing the next step, you're going to be a multimillionaire. And all of that is wrapped into this. All of that is wrapped into this. Because for too long, it sounds like in this, the higher levels of this culture, right? They could do whatever they wanted. We, we are talking about a criminal investigation here. That if this happened at a dance, at a, uh, involving a group of, um, of band members, uh, in the school band who were 18 years old. Uh, would there be a different response? Were these, were these stars given more leeway because they're stars? I don't know, but if you're Hockey Canada and you're faced with all of that, the idea that you can still, including the secret fund to pay off victims, the idea that you can still suggest to the Canadian public you're there for the good of the game and trying to keep the lights on at the minor hockey rink. It's just, it's part of the problem. The hubris is part of the problem. They're doing hockey. They're doing hockey. Months ago, Cathal Kelly in the Globe and Mail wrote, what does Hockey Canada actually do? I'm paraphrasing him here. Go look it up. It's a great column. They, they grow the game. They grow hockey in Canada. Like that's like growing snow. <laughs> like it's not hard. I've said this to my son. Who's very into hockey. I, I, I don't know nearly as much about hockey as him. I could probably pick team Canada for the Olympics. I probably could. I appreciate this is not the only thing that hockey Canada does. There are obviously other things at the minor league levels. You know, they are, they, they set the concussion protocol as this game finally changed and treated this as a brain injury as the science advanced. 
you think about the difference between um, the way Eric Lindros was treated and Sidney Crosby with their concussions in two different eras. Um, Hockey Canada has a hand in pushing that down uh, all through organized hockey. If you've got a novice player who is only playing half ice and hitting has been removed and then brought back in at a different age as the advancement and the knowledge of brain injuries advances, all of that is implemented by Hockey Canada. This is not a bunch of fat cats sitting around smoking cigars. But there is that element, right? That they are fat cats sitting around smoking cigars, giving each other rings when these young players win world championships and going out in $5,000 dinners. And then when they're faced with sexual assault allegations, they, they pay off a complainant and expect everybody to just move on. It's 2022. That stuff doesn't happen anymore. So we're going to start with Hockey Canada. And Lisa Wallace regularly covers the um, Ottawa Senators, the Red Blacks. She's a freelance sports writer for Canadian Press and has been around the game a long time. And uh, we're going to talk to her about what this means. She's also a hockey mom at a high, with a high-level kid playing, right? Um, because the, the, this story is reverberating through the rinks, and it's not just the NHL rinks. It's the other rinks as well, perhaps more importantly. I'm Graham Richardson. We're back in just a moment with more on Hockey Canada. Stay with us. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson, just back past 1220. Hope you're having a good day. Uh, Hockey Canada again in the news for all the wrong reasons. Finally, though, the president and the board have resigned after what can only be described as a, um, just a, a, about every, they broke every rule in the book in terms of communicating a message and in terms of trying to repair damage to the organization. They made it worse every time they appeared. The last appearance in front of parliament was the worst by far. When you have the prime minister of the country suggesting that he can just start a new organization and replace it, and they just need to go, and they still didn't seem to get the message. They finally got the message over the weekend. Lisa Wallace covers the Ottawa Senators for Canadian Press, uh, joins us on the line. Lisa, you're also a, a hockey mom, I know, of a high-level player. Uh, sum this all up. Like, What goes through your mind when you think about this sordid few months and this story that has essentially paralyzed Hockey Canada uh, for months as the public just uh, doesn't know what to make of it. You know, the one thing, and I and I, I spoke to a couple people this weekend about it, is just, you know, it reinforces the importance of good journalism because had that story not been broken by mm-hmm. Rick Westhead, we still would would be completely in the dark about the fund and the payments made out to to victims. And so I think we're finally seeing a bit of a, a day of reckoning. And the news today of, um, you know, the change at, at the head of the organization is welcome. And I don't think we're going to see, you know, it's going to take a long time to get, I think, the right changes made. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Bauer 
Canada who, you know, they withheld, they decided to pull their financial support, I think really, you know, made a good point and said, maybe it's time to blow it all up and start over. And I think now the fact that, you know, we've seen the changes at the board has stepped down and Scott Smith has resigned. It's time to really bring in fresh voices and new perspectives that reflect Canada's culture and, and those who are playing the game from the grassroots level. And I think to me, I think that's what's kind of gotten a little bit lost with Hockey Canada is that we've become so focused on the competitive programs and high level and, right. you know, only those, the world juniors and everything, right? But there's a ton of kids who are just playing for the pure joy and love of the sport. And that's what this organization needs to recognize. Girls hockey is exploding how, how, in popularity. How exactly. Can, how can you, as a Hockey Canada organization, look at this situation in London and go in front of the public and say, nothing to see here, which is essentially what they did at the first uh, hearing in front of Parliament after Rick's story broke. They, yeah. they, they really tried to just, let's just dig down deep and give 110% and move on here. Like, this is not, you know... Very, very serious allegations, uh, organization-shaking, sport-shaking accusations. Hello, gymnastics in the United States. Exactly. And they just seem to kind of hockey it, is the way I termed it in the early earlier segment, that we're hockey, we can just move on from this because we're hockey. Yeah. Uh, no, you can't. No, you can't. Not in 2022. Well, and I, I think as well, right, as, as parents, when they realize that the fees that they are paying were being used to, you know, in, as part of the fund to pay these lawsuits out, we're just completely angered by this. I mean, I know for myself as a parent, when I heard that, I this year, even when I, you know, went to register my son and you have to, you have to pay that registration fee. And I was like, I don't even want to do this now knowing the history behind it. And I think, you know, it's that arrogance almost that Hockey Canada had of thinking, well, we're not, we're Canada's national sport. We're everyone's favorite sport. We can do whatever we want without consequence. Yeah. And now there's been a reckoning. And I think people are, are willing to, to be a little louder and say, no, no, that's not acceptable anymore. Yeah. I, I don't want to get too graphic here and I don't want to make the listeners uncomfortable, but you've been around pro hockey a long time. You've been around high level hockey. And there is this thing where boys will be boys, you know, this attitude. Um, many of them are soon to be millionaires in this junior case. And NHL players, I look at the Cole situation with the Tampa Bay Lightning, you know, there is this feeling like they are going to behave in this way on the road sometimes. There's going to be drinking in some cases. And this kind of thing has happened all along or for a long time. Yeah. That attitude, how much do you think permeated the organization to the top levels of hockey Canada in that if in that these are these the London group were were and are stars in the making and about to be stars if not already stars. How much of that sort of protective sort of this is what's always gone on do you think permeated the organization at Hockey Canada? To, to an outstanding level, right? And I think this is the thing, is it's 
you wonder and you look back and you say, where along the way did it become acceptable to just sort of say, oh, boys will be boys. It's right. just part of, it's just part of the sport. It's, you know, it's, accept- and I, you know, I've covered from when I started out as a reporter 25 years ago and I covered a lot of junior hockey and, you know, I look back at some of the things that I saw and I experienced and everything, and there was that attitude permeated everything that it was like, oh, you know, just, you just got to let it go. This is the way hockey is, you know, you got to have a bit of a tougher skin. Right. And, you know, and it's something that for me as a parent to my own son, I have drilled into him the importance of respect and that you need to find that strength of character to stand up if you are in a bad situation or you're seeing the wrong thing. But it's that, you know, we have had generation after generation that have just, you know, shared that message of, hey, I've got your back. Don't worry. What happens on the road stays on the road. Or, you know, and I think that's the thing is you need to start and bring in people who firmly believe this is not acceptable and it needs to change. And that's got to be even at your grassroots level, because I have seen it even in, you know, minor hockey in the last few years is that it's, it's whether it's coaches or volunteers who they're all hoping I'm going to make it to that next level, right? It's, I want to make it and I want to get to the pros. So they're willing sometimes to sacrifice their scruples just in the hope that you're going to, you're going to make it to that next level. And that's not right. So I think you need a diversity of voices and it can't just be, you know, it used to be, Oh, what do you know? You didn't play at a high level or you don't have the background. Well, you know what? Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe I'm going to bring a new, new set of eyes to this and bring fresh ideas to the table. So I think now you look and you have a blank slate and you've got to get it right. Is it going to take time? I think so. I think people who are hoping that you're just going to be able, you know, to put in place, new people and run new programs. No, this is something that if you're going to get it done right, you need to take the time and you need to make the right investments and get the right group of people at the table. And I think, you know, Bauer is willing to play a significant role from, you know, some of the comments that they have made and they're a heavy hitter. And to me, the fact that they were willing to pull their sponsorship because they didn't like the direction Hockey Canada going in speaks volumes, but still recognized, we're going to we're going to still support girls and women's hockey because that needs that support i think is fantastic so you know i think this is a small small step in a long marathon in in things changing at hockey canada and, and quickly lisa i've only got a, about 30 seconds what about the players who were in that room in london because we have the ian cole situation accused on twitter of something and he's removed from the team. If there are NHL players who are under criminal investigation again in London, how can they still be on the ice? I don't understand that. You know, well, what I mean? and right. And this is something I, I just, I spoke to a pretty well-connected coach this weekend and he just, he goes, how do these players look at themselves in the mirror? He goes, cause chances are they either have a sister or they have cousins, they have yeah. mothers and you watched this happen or you were aware of it and you've done nothing. Lisa Wallace, out of time. Thank you very much.
It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. By launching missile attacks on civilians, sleeping in their homes or rushing to work, children going to schools, Russia has proven once again that it is a terrorist state that must be deterred. I'm Graham Richardson. Uh, this is News Talk Today. In um, Kiev, we witnessed more evidence that these missiles, it appears, are dropping randomly or uh, maybe even uh, targeting at targeted civilians. Um, Paul Workman last night standing in front of a crater, uh, in, literally in a playground next to a museum, he said, as people looked at this bomb crater uh, designed to terrorize the public after uh, several uh, stunning instances of success by the Ukrainian military um, and that that appears to be maybe shifting the war against Russia. Um, watching this for months, it has dropped off the public's radar. Now it is back on in a very big way. David Fraser, retired ma- major general, um, he joins us now. Uh, I remember months ago on this program you saying um, that that Russia appeared to be bogged down, that their that their their armed forces looked scattered, and it didn't look like a a, a very professional uh, armed forces whatsoever. Um, what do you make of where they are now and these? these missile attacks uh, over the last 48 hours. Well, Graham, it's good to be with you. And, and, and this is just further illustration of the Russian poor thinking, the fact that they are firing indiscriminately at civilian targets all across Ukraine. So they still have the power to fire into Western Ukraine in towns like Lviv and whatnot. But it just demonstrates that they're not focused on military targets. They're focused on civilian and infrastructure and not the uh, Ukrainian Defense Force offense, which is illustrative that their their own Russian military is incapable of handling uh, the war. So this is just a terrorist attack against a country that is not going to be bullied by Putin. They certainly have shown that over the last few months, that they're not. it's not going to be as quick as Russia expected. And and the other the other thing I'm struck by is uh, not, is the the conscription backfire, um, the thousands who fled to airports and then those who were conscripted. Social media now showing us uh, their living conditions. I mean, you cannot fake that. I mean, th- some of these people ended up in fields with no tents, with nothing to sleep on, with no weapons. Uh, is there any sense of how widespread the lack of equipment is in the Russian forces? There's real no sense of of what's going on behind the Russian curtain other than what we see uh, at the borders of the mass exodus of male people who are leaving and these, uh, you know, videograms that are coming out, which demonstrates that there is no leadership in the Russian military. They are just being left to their own devices. They are literally scraping the bottom of the barrel which means that you know those troops that eventually do get put into combat will be ill-prepared, probably equipped with old equipment because the good equipment is, is gone and will be just slaughtered uh, in this uh, attempt of Putin to try to prosecute a mission which he so far has yet to be able to achieve anything. Mm. What is, I, I appreciate we don't know the timeline, but what is the end game here? both for the Russians and clearly the Ukrainians are, have been, and most of NATO is basically 
this doesn't end until you're out of Ukraine. From a Russian perspective, what what possibly could that look like? Are we there yet or, or are we close or is it too difficult to measure? We are nowhere close for, to the end of this war. Uh, but the war has gone from being dominated by Russia to now being dominated by uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainians supported by the West. And as long as the Ukrainians are able to continue the offense and keep pushing the Russians back towards the Russian border, this war is not going to end. And and the so what of that is that we'll see more attacks on civilian targets, more attacks on infrastructure as the winter approaches to try to make Ukraine as cold and as miserable as possible by the Russians. Well, the Russians try to solidify their defensive network and try to prevent their forces being pushed back right to the Russian border. But this won't end until it's at the Russian border. And what does that mean? Like pushing them that far back? We're talking thousands of dead. We're we're talking probably hundreds of thousands on both sides being killed. We're talking about by the time that, you know, if if the Ukrainians are able to push them back to the border, and that's a big if, uh, you know, there won't be any peace. It'll be just a a stalemate of where the Ukrainians say, you know, you're out of our country, don't do it again. And the, and the Russians trying to justify what they have just done. But that's a lot of ifs. But between now and then, um, this is this gets really bad <laughs> if it, mm. get, it can get any worse than it already is. What what about nukes? And uh, do you believe that was a an idle threat or a like? Is it possible he could actually do that? Putin doesn't make idle threats. It's in their doctrine. Uh, the report coming out of the UK today. There's been no indication that they are they are preparing for nuclear weapons, but we should not take that off the table. It's a serious threat. We've got to take uh, with the, the words and the intent that it was given. But at the same time, before that happens, we have to look at what what's going to happen with Belarus. Is Belarus going to put soldiers into Ukraine, which would open up a front, which could relieve some of the pressure against the Russians? That would be a deep concern. The Russians have a brand new commander, you know, nicknamed uh, Armageddon, who has got lots of combat experience, is more ruthless and determined than his predecessor, and that should worry all of us. So there's an awful lot more things that could happen before we get to that uh, that decision point of nuclear weapons. And whenever you're on, I ask you about this, and the answer is depressingly always the same. Has Putin been weakened inside Russia? Is he vulnerable or not even close by our standards? By our standards, I don't think he is close. I mean, he's had 20 years to put an apparatus around him that, you know, have people and mechanisms and support that will allow him to stay in power. But, you know, at the same time, he's got an awful lot more to worry about in his own backyard than he did at the beginning of the war. But this just makes him more dangerous when he's actually being pressured on both sides, both in Ukraine and back in Russia. And we should not count him out. And we should actually be watching for even more you know, outbursts like what he's done for the last few days by attacking uh, all across Ukraine. Uh, Putin is now at his most dangerous. David Fraser, thanks so much for being here again. Appreciate it. Karen, thank you. All right. Putin at his most dangerous. That's all you need to know. And watch that very closely because it is um, it's unnerving, right? It's unnerving, uh, you know, uh, living in the naivete of the Cold War being over 
and that uh, Russian was an open society, you had to look away from a lot of things to accept that. And that has essentially blown up in all of our faces, the notion that uh, this is not a, um, you know, a democracy or a, a, a capitalist society similar to ours with a with a with a former KGB head at the top. This is uh, this is a totalitarian state, uh, and uh, they are willing to do um, obviously whatever they whatever they want to achieve their ends and um, throw a torch into Europe, and that's what they've done. So we will continue to watch that. It is uh, unsettling to say the least. Um, when we come back, uh, a bit of a we're going to re- return to Juno Beach. And the condo dispute that has been resolved. You'll recall that right near Juno Beach, developer was going to put up condos. Canadian government and others have stepped in to buy the land and preserve what uh, many veterans, many people in the Canadian military, and Canadians in general view as hallowed ground. And we will speak with someone, uh, Cindy Clegg, about that Save the Juno Beach campaign and what it means. Also, Later on in the program, after the one o'clock news, we're going to speak with Emily Latta. She's a mother in Ottawa, and this story reverberates around the country. She has an 18-month-old. She can't get him a family doctor, and he's behind on his shots. Stay with us. We're back in just a moment. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. The Normandy Normandy landings, of course, D-Day and uh, Juneau Beach hold a very special place in Canadians' uh, minds and hearts. Uh, The final push in the Second World War essentially began en masse, their Canadian success uh, deep, deeper than the other allies, it appeared at the time. And uh, there's some minor debate about that, but um, an incredibly important part of our history uh, in the Second World War. Um, Several months ago, um, there was a, a debate heated up in the area because a developer wanted to put condos quite close to significant portions of the beach where uh, Canadians um, have been uh, commemorated, their deaths have been commemorated, and it was too close for many. Um, that has changed because the Canadian government and others have stepped up to buy the land. Someone who's been fighting this Save the Juno Beach campaign is Cindy Clegg. She joins us on the line. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Thanks so much for being on. Tell me what you thought when you heard that, I guess, this development had been put off because the land has been purchased. <laughs> um, it, relief and uh, a little bit of disbelief. Uh, trying to stop this condo development late, late, late in the game was a moonshot, and uh, it, it happened. So uh, I'm still in. Uh, I'm still. I'm still thrilled uh, and surprised. <laughs> yeah, because this is. One of these things that we all chalk up, well, there, you can't do anything about progress. Uh, 
You know, um, people have to live there. There's all sorts of reasons people fall back on it, not to fight something. For you, what was the difference here? Why did you really want to fight this? Well, um, first of all, it was uh, quite an underhanded deal. Uh, no one was aware of the land sale <clears throat> until it happened. And uh, the first notification that the Juno Beach Center got about it was uh, 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 being uh, served uh, with a court case. Mm. So, you know, first of all, uh, you know, it, it was it started off as a dirty fight. Then you look at uh, the hostility that was around uh, all of this work. And you thought, you know, honestly, Graham, the first thing I thought of was, what if this happened at Omaha Beach or Utah Beach, where the Americans landed. And I think we both know the answer to that, which was it would have been a non-starter right from the beginning. But in Canada, Veterans Affairs was just letting that just roll right over them. And I thought that we had to do something about it. Physically, how close was this development going to be to the actual visitor center and the key part of Juneau Beach? Well, it's, it's adjacent. And so what it meant was that uh, it, it turned out the developer bought property that was landlocked. So there was no way to access it. So what it, for, the first thing it wanted to do was drive over, you know, the, the private driveway into the Juneau Beach Center with all of its construction equipment for two years. Hmm. And, then, uh, and then have, you know, a, about 850 cars a day traveling on it to support the people who live there. So... Um, it was. It just became obscene because this was land that was leased to Canada for commemoration, and it would have just been, it, you know, it, it's an intrusion. But more to the point, it's it's a point. It's a it's a place of commemoration. It's a place to go and be thoughtful about. And it's pretty tough when you've got luxury seaside condos with you know it, it, with people just literally next door to the Canadian Memorial. It was, mm. it was untenable in my mind. And a lot of people agreed. What were, I would imagine though, as we continue to lose our veterans from this uh, generation, and I'm not suggesting that young people are disconnected, but they're not as connected to fight things like this. How concerned are you that this is going to happen again? Oh, I, I have no doubt that this type of thing will happen again. But on the other hand, I don't think anyone is saying that the battlefields of Europe should be frozen in time. Right. Uh, but there are particular pieces of property that should be set aside and for commemorative purposes. Like the same thing at Vimy Ridge. I mean, you don't see water slides going in at Vimy Ridge. You don't have condos over places where your grandfather may have died. Mm -hmm. That seems pretty reasonable position, even though they're not, as the, the old real estate um, statement goes, they're not making more land. Yeah, but there's still a lot of land that you can do these things uh, further away from hallowed ground. Yes, exactly. And, and there were options for this developer. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so, so that point is actually moot. Mm-hmm. What um, what does uh, what does this site mean to you? Well, you know, I have no connection directly to anyone who fought in it at D Day, but 
um, as part of my career as a communications consultant, I was really lucky to have been to Juneau Beach several times in creating uh, media events there around commemoration. So I was there for the 60th and the 65th anniversaries. And I had the pleasure of being around a lot of veterans who for many had never even been back there. So as a empathically, you absorb the profound emotion and meaning that it had for them. And when you're there, it's very stark. No wonder this was a place of enormous personal courage and sacrifice because, uh, you know, they were just walking into machine guns Mm. and machine gun nests to the whole thing. So when you get to look at what it was they achieved, the power of it is really something. So, I think, you know, for me, the Juno Beach Centre in Normandy is, provides a really tangible memorial to what Canada did in the Second World War. And so it, it, it you know, commemorates their sacrifices. But more importantly, it helps educate adults and kids of today and the future about the role of Canada in preserving the freedoms that we enjoy today. And, and Graham, given what kind of world we're living in now, I think that forgetting how we achieved those freedoms and what went into having the lifestyles that we have today are more important than ever. So to me, that's what the fight's about. And physically, last point, being there lets you see and feel what they might have gone through, a better appreciation for it. Yeah. Um, So besides the museum, they also have Juno Park, which is... um, uh, uh, you know, some of the uh, the German strongholds that were built there so that people can actually go in and see and participate. But, you know, in a, in a virtual world, there's lots of things that the Juno Beach Centre can provide to people in Canada. They don't have to go there to do it either. So it serves a place for Canadians, and it serves a place to remind Europeans about what Canada does and is today. And, you know, its contribution to the kind of lifestyle that they're allowed to lead now. Appreciate your time, Cindy, and congratulations. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Graham. A rare happy ending on one of these things. Nice to hear that. Um, I'm Graham Richardson. This is News Talk Today. We're back in just a moment. Stay with us. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. All across the country, we are seeing pressure on our healthcare system we've really never seen before, at least not in my lifetime. Um, it is extraordinary, whether it's walk-in clinics refusing people because they're full, um, people without family doctors, of course, that's a huge issue that continues to appear to get worse. Um, emergency rooms bursting at the seams. And then if you look at the nursing situation, towns and cities and regions now competing against each other to um, offer better incentives for the same pool of workers to come to their town or their region or their province, in in some cases with extraordinarily uh, generous 
uh, packages that anybody coming out of medical school or nursing school would be foolish not to look at. Um, it, 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 this this sort of competition for talent for um, for professionals it's not going to go away in a short period of time. It's taken a long time to get there, to get where we are today. And everywhere you turn for your family in the healthcare system, whether it's children, elderly, middle-aged, emergencies, chronic illnesses, you are seeing this. Our assumptions about our healthcare system are being challenged, if not um, being destroyed by the circumstances in front of us. This Woman's story caught our eye here in the Ottawa area. Uh, Emily Latta emailed our newsroom, and she has an 18-month-old son. And for 18 months, she's been trying to find him a family doctor without success. Emily's on the phone now. Emily, thanks again for joining us. Um, no problem. So this, I'm assuming this started as soon as your son was born, trying to find him a family doctor. Yeah, it did. What, what's it been like? So um, it's just like seemed really impossible almost because like the first thing I kind of did was like go online and look up like family doctors in Ottawa. Right. And um, when I went to look that up, there was like, you know, there's all these clinics that pop up and stuff, but every clinic you click right next to the phone number, it says not accepting new patients. And then, you know, you go to resources in like the city, like public health nurses, and you ask for a list of like doctors who are accepting patients and they give you a list. And even they tell you most of these doctors aren't actually accepting patients because we don't have a list of doctors who are accepting patients. This is a city of a million people, the Canada, Canada's capital. This is not a small town where, Doctors have been scarce and, and, you know, you've got to adjust to a small town. This is a major city in a G7 country and you can't find a doctor for your baby. Yeah. What has it, it meant for his care? Um, so my son doesn't have any health conditions that I know of. And he's like, as far as I'm concerned, he seems perfectly fine. Sure. But it is scary because as like a first time mother... Uh, do, and I'm a single mom too. I just like, it's just me and my son. And I know that I do not have like the same, well, I don't have the same knowledge of medical care as a doctor would have. So without having those checkups, I'm constantly afraid that there's something that's going unnoticed by me because I'm not recognizing it. And, you know, you can't just walk into like an ER and be like, Hey, I don't think there's something wrong with my kid, but can you check just in case? But, and like, you don't have, and you don't have 15 hours to wait to be seen. Exactly. Right. And, and if you did, if you did try to go to triage and say, just check out my kid, they would be like, well, no, we have emergencies to deal with. Like, that's not what we're here for. It seems like you have nowhere to turn. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, it's just, yeah, there's just like really nothing available. I've called 311. I've talked to public health nurses and I'm just constantly being told the same thing of just like, there's nothing available. Just keep trying to get on wait lists. What are you going to do? Um, honestly, I'm not very sure at this point. I've kind of found a lead in the fact that, my, so my son hasn't been vaccinated since he was two months old. And I had been calling Apple Tree Medical Centers trying to get an appointment for him uh, to get vaccinated because they do do childhood vaccinations through appointment without being a family physician of your child. Um, but I had been told, like, 
their uh, their customer service is very weird because at first they would tell me, oh, no appointments available. It needs to be like your family physician. And then one day I talked to somebody who said, yeah, this clinic will do something called the Well Baby Program. And I'm not, I'm still not exactly sure how that works, but I know that through that they're able to like give him like checkups and his vaccinations. I'm not sure if he can get a pediatrician through that, but I'll have to see. But that appointment, I went to make it in August and it, uh, it's not till late November. Late November. So yeah. did you ever think it was going to be this difficult? I really didn't. Um, I don't know. I also like, I expected to be able to get a family physician through my obstetrician because I, I didn't really know when I was pregnant, the, like how bad the situation was and all like, you know, my mom and like my grandmother and aunts were all like, oh yeah, your obstetrician will give you somebody, but that didn't end up happening. So just like everybody else until you're faced with it, you're not really focused on it. And your mom and your aunts, and they probably have doctors or they've got an option here and it's like, not to worry. That's the way it was done before. And the ground has shifted here. Exactly. And I was going to be sending my son to like, well, when I first got pregnant too, another thought I had was that I would just bring my son to my family physician, but my family physician worked in a long-term care home and closed his practice to only patients of the long-term care home uh, when COVID hit. Yeah. Uh, Emily, thanks for sharing your story. You're not alone. It doesn't help, but we wish you good luck with your son and we're glad he's healthy. What's his name? His name's Jared. Nice, Jared. Big life Jared's got in front of him. Good for you. Thanks, Emily. Appreciate this. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Um, Emily's not alone. Uh, let me know your healthcare stories, whether it's trying to find a family doctor or the wait time at ER or the wait time at a clinic. Can you get into the clinics? 71010. You can also call us at 1 855 633 1010. One text here Hey, News Talk. Of Canadian healthcare, patient outcome-based care and not cost-saving-based care should be the goal. That's from London. I agree. Um, and, you know, you talk to anybody who watches the healthcare system and the amount of money that Canada puts in the healthcare system, in some cases, it's north of 40% of the provincial budgets. When I was covering Queen's Park, I remember, I believe in the early 2000s in the Ontario legislature, the healthcare budget surpassed 40%, I believe, for the first time and has stayed there. Like, it is billions of dollars in spending. You look at any part of it, the, the, the problem is that it feels like, as patients, it is not trickling down. Something's happening to the billions that, um, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but... You talk to a medical student or a new doctor, um, the limitations and w what what they're hoping to achieve versus what they can achieve, it is, it is night and day. Let us know your frustrations. We're going to keep doing this story this week, whether it's trying to get in to get primary care, whether it's trying to get in to um, be seen for specialties in a long wait, or whether it's the completely overstressed hospital system post-COVID and the work shortages. We want to hear your stories about a fundamental basic in Canada that we have all assumed would be there for us. You know, I like to say, like, you know, when you take a look at the United States and people who live and work there, a factor in their lives is saving for cancer. They all have to save cash for cancer because of private health care. 
We don't. That is a bonus in Canada. The trouble is that you've got newborns who are 18 months old now and don't have family doctors. That's not the way it's supposed to be. So let us know, 71010, send us your healthcare stories. When we come back, we're going to speak with Nick Nanos. And maybe you're going to want to text in about this. His latest survey nationally shows Trudeau still tops Polyev for preferred prime minister. But there's other very troubling signs inside the polling data for the Liberals. Even though if you're watching politics closely, everybody knows who Pierre Polyev is, the public out there that generally tunes into politics every four years has no idea who this guy in glasses is. They just know he's always hammering Trudeau. So it doesn't surprise me necessarily that his number hasn't pushed up. Will it? We'll talk to Nick after the break when News Talk Today returns. I'm Graham Richardson. Stay with us. Staying on the story, News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Uh, Glad to have you with us. Uh, By the way, uh, the coronation of King Charles has been announced as May 6th. Uh, Buckingham Palace just announcing this a few moments ago. Uh, May 6th, Saturday, May 6th next year. Sorry, does that mean 2023? No. Um, well, of course it does. Sorry. (laughs) We're only in October. Anyway, May 6th of next year in the springtime after the winter, uh, the coronation will take place. King Charles, mark your calendars, um, as people, uh, turn their attention towards, uh, the, uh, the Charles era of, uh, the monarchy and, uh, uh, the extraordinary reign of his mother will be very, very difficult to, uh, to duplicate. Um, a lot of attention, uh, on the latest Nanos research poll, um, the headline, uh, the Globe and Mail chose, uh, yesterday, by the way, Marike Walsh story was that Trudeau is still preferred over Polyev as prime minister, but it's not all, it's not that great. A, a lot of people, um, of people didn't want either to lead the country. (laughs) It's a pox on both their houses. I'm wondering about whether, uh, how many people know Polyev. I know he is more well-known, arguably, than Andrew Scheer and then than uh, Aaron O'Toole was before him. Um, Aaron O'Toole, in particular, hobbled by the pandemic, trying to get out there and get noticed and get known by the public. It was very, very difficult because uh, we were focused on other things other than politics. Um, Pierre Polyev doesn't have that problem. Uh, he's He won a traditional, um, in many ways, traditional leadership campaign, crisscrossed the country, held large rallies, um, w- was in people's phones mainly, <laughs> in their social media feeds repeatedly over and over again. So I think the recognition level is higher. The other thing is, like 
in many ways like television, um, the role of opposition leader puts you in a box. It, people see you this way, um, as being, you know, a critic of the government. And it is, it's a significant shift to ask you to think about that person picking a cabinet and leading the government. Don't get me wrong. It's not, I'm not suggesting that, that, that means this person can't do that. It's just, it's the job of turning the public's attention away from the previous job to the new job. And that can take a fair bit of time. Ask Jean Chrétien. He had leadership troubles in the early days that everybody forgets about because the, the party wasn't sure he could do it. And the rest is history. So is Mr. Polyev facing those kinds of challenges? Joining us now, Nick Nanos from Nanos Research. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining in. Great to join you and all your listeners. Yes. Um, what, is, what story does this tell, uh, this, this poll you've done, uh, for both leaders, uh, Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Polyev? Well, I think... People are not enthusiastic about either one of those choices. You know, it's interesting, at least three out of every ten Canadians say that there's nothing that they like about either uh, Trudeau or Poiliev. And uh, it probably speaks to our current state of affairs mm. uh, when it comes to what's on the political uh, menu, so to speak. Is that unusual? Because I think back to 2015, and there was a curiosity about Trudeau and enthusiasm and there certainly appears to be an enthusiasm about Polyev in certain quarters. Yeah. Um, is there enough, I guess, at this point uh, for him to uh, to make to form government, or are we far too far away from that? Well, uh, is there enough for Polyev to form a government? Yes, because one of the things that we do know is that every government has a best before date. Mm -hmm. uh, even governments that people like, it's it's almost like it's it's time for a change. And I think for the Liberals, they've been in power since 2015. I think for some Canadians, they might feel that the Liberals are fatigued and that it's time for uh, time for a change. I think for I think for Poiliev, I think his uh, his key challenge is to jettison some of the things that might be flags for some voters. And you know, the thing is, is at the top of his dislikes. Uh, were things like, you know, too right wing, his association with the uh, the truckers convoy. People, some people even use his uh, being Trump like that kind of stuff. I think, mm. you know, um, I think he has to drop those. You know, I don't think there's any gain. I understand why he did that to win uh, the leadership race because not every Canadian votes in the leadership race. Motivated voters and uh, highly engaged voters uh, vote in leadership races. But you know, I think for him. And I think it looks like he is already pivoting. His focus in the House is on meat and potatoes issues like rising costs of uh, paying the bills, rising housing, and stuff like that. So he's got to not—he's got to put some of those other things behind him as not priorities to win an election. And as we saw last week, the Liberals attempting to continually remind Canadians about those in quotes extremes, and in some cases, you don't even have to put the quotes on this—the YouTube videos and the association with. Um, with these male groups that he's been, that someone in his office tagged for years, that's a significant issue uh, that reminds voters again that you, you're, you're not really sure what you're getting with Polyev. If they're able to do that, can they push back the best before date? Well, they could. And this is why Pierre Polyev has to respond to, you know, these tags for these misogynistic groups in the video 
you know, I don't think it's enough just to say that they've all been taken down. I think people would would like to hear, well, is this ever going to happen again? Was mm-hmm. that person did that was that person authorized to put these tags in? Is someone going to get fired? Because the thing is is that the way he handles this will be a signal both internally and externally. So, if someone puts these tags on and only gets a slap on the wrist internally, then that means okay, maybe the leader's okay with that. Likewise, conversely, if 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 someone loses their job because this is deemed to, to cross a particular line, then that'll be another signal that Pierre Poiliev will be able to send to his own campaign and his supporters uh, that you know this thing isn't isn't acceptable. So, I think he has to decide: does he want to be? Does he want to? have this as a distraction or not from his core message of focusing on the economy and jobs. And right now, at least, it looks like he's he's just taken down the tags, but that's pretty well about it, which mm-hmm. leaves an opportunity for all of, any other politician to take a run at him. Jenny Byrne has said, he what you see is what you get, and they don't care about what Nick and Graham say because we're part of the chattering yeah, class, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I understand that. But Mulroney also says you got to win the country. Could could this kind of thing get in the way of of winning 905, going into places like, you know, Vancouver, the lower mainland, in a way that conservatives haven't done since Harper was prime minister? Well, you know, another way to look at it, Graham, is, you know, the winning com- the winning franchise for both the liberals and the conservatives are variations of the same thing. So. For the liberals to win an election, they need to do very well among women and be competitive among men, and that's when they win. For the conservatives, it's the mirror image. It's to do well among men and be competitive among women. When mm-hmm. Stephen Harper won elections, it's when he continued to to do well among male voters and then was competitive with his soccer mom, very pragmatic uh, agenda. So this particular issue is basically a big problem for Pierre Poiliev, if he wants to be competitive among women voters, structurally, if he's not competitive among women mo- voters, it's almost mathematically impossible for him to win an election. So he's just got to be competitive. So why have something like this, which undermines your competitiveness among like 51% of the population? Nick Nanos, appreciate your time. Thank you. Take it easy. Bye-bye. All right. That's Nick Nanos. And um, he's going to face more scrutiny, right? He's going to face more scrutiny. He wants to be prime minister of the country. Um, this is not about, you know, picking a side here, but if he's going to put himself out as uh, a prime minister, uh, legitimate questions about, yes, about the tags on the videos for years are going to come. And you can't just do your own YouTube videos. You've got to face these questions every other prime minister has. Stay with us. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. Um, this is one of these have to read the story three times to fully get it. Uh, but it does it does make sense. In, in Quebec, they're rolling out a teeth brushing program for young children. Proper teeth brushing 
etiquette, time, hygiene, all of these, all of these good things, uh, because oftentimes at the youngest ages, habits form and problem teeth, as we hear from children's hospitals can often lead to very, very serious dental surgery and, and other things down the line if basic hygiene isn't adhered to. The interesting thing in Quebec is teachers are going to be involved with supervising this. In a large classroom, uh, two kids at a time, apparently, the plan is to have teachers uh, supervise how the children are brushing their teeth and do it every day. Many teachers' unions have raised questions about this, particularly during a work shortage and during all of the challenges throughout the pandemic that teachers faced. Heidi Yetman is the president of the Quebec Provincial Association of Teachers and joins us on the line. Um, what do you make of this program, Ms. Yetman, and what is your position on it uh, for your members? Well, we all know that dental health is important, so we think that, you know, there's a, this is a, a great program. The problem that we have is uh, putting it on the backs of teachers. So mm -hmm. teachers already have enormous responsibilities, enormous, um, big long list of roles and responsibilities, and we just don't want to add to that list. And um, the other thing that, that I think is really interesting is, well, interesting, I guess that's not a really good word, there was no consultation. There was no collaboration. Mm. So there was no, we, did, we heard about it through the media, believe it or not. But Always great when that been, happens, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this program actually has started, started in 2017. Mm -hmm. So we do have schools that have dental hygienists that go in and speak to the kids, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a lot different than asking teachers with a class of 26 to get them to uh, stand in line two at a time, brush their teeth while they're being supervised. For two so, minutes, yeah. right? So if you do two at a time for two minutes, that's a lot of time during the day, isn't it? Absolutely, it's a lot of time. And already teachers are finding it really hard to get through their curriculum at the elementary level. They're already finding... Uh, that they have no time, they're working evenings, they're working uh, weekends. So um, we just don't see this as logistically also very difficult. We just don't see this as viable. Uh, like not all classrooms have a sink in them. Right. Uh, so there's another logistic problem. So this is typical, though, even during COVID, the uh, public health sector sent a whole bunch of directives to the um, to the uh, education sector without actually consulting or talking to people on the ground to see if it works. Uh, you know, I, I give the, always give the example of the keep kids two meters apart. Obviously, they've never been in a classroom. Yeah, before. good luck with that. Exactly. So this right. is the same thing. Here's the health authority again saying, look, we've got this great plan. We're going to get teachers supervising teeth brushing but without actually going down and speaking to the teachers to see if this is workable, is it even possible in some schools where they may have very few bathrooms available, there'll be have to be planning and, you know, a schedule. Like, it is a logistic nightmare, really. So even and, uh, rough, rough calculation, the 26 kids, uh, you know, you cut that in half, two at a time, if everything goes like clockwork, which it never does, no, of that's course, 20, that's half an hour. That's 26 minutes of teeth time. And, and so that means 45 minutes if you're lucky. Um, and that's if there's a sink in the class. 
Yes. So and what? You what, know what children are like too. Of course. At, at a sink with water and a toothbrush. Oh, and toothpaste sure. And they're gonna do all sorts of it's stuff. It's gonna be lots of fun. Right. Yeah. And, and I understand the principle here is that is that parents uh, in various you know socioeconomic circumstances yeah. may neglect this this side of the of the children's health because for a variety of reasons. So I, I understand mm-hmm. the the public health thrust of this. Um, Absolutely. And and. I, I guess public health is loath to basically attempt to communicate to families directly on this issue for why would that be? Well, I think that there, uh, you know, that's a really good question because really we should be teaching parents. Yeah. Um, maybe that's what should be happening instead is to reach out to parents and getting them involved and teach them about, you know, oral care and dental health. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be part of the plan. I've seen that in other plans. Like I kind of did a little bit of research and looked around, and I, I've, and and one of the part of the plans was always making sure that the parents were involved. That doesn't seem to be the case. And like I said, we think it's a great idea. I think dental health is important, but we're going to have to hire the people to come in and do it, or to make sure uh, that. Teachers have teacher aides. I don't know uh, if you know, but in Quebec, we do not have teacher aides. And I know that Ontario, they have teacher aides, and in Manitoba, they have teacher Some, aides. Yeah. So we don't have that extra body in the class that we would need to do such a program. So it's one for 26 uh, in between the math class and the reading class. Let's do teeth time. Exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> exactly. Boy. Yeah, and, and uh, um, I don't, you know, my elementary school in the, you know, in the, in the seventies, I remember something that, you know, the participation and the health hustle where they got everybody in the, yes, in the class in the, right. In the, <laughs> to exercise. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I, that, that all made sense. Get the kids moving and that sort of thing. But it was the beginning of the day. You all did it at once. And then yeah. it was done after one song. But th- th- this is something, this is, this is something different. Um, has the government responded like, it sounds like there's quite a backlash against it. Well, uh, the unions are obviously against it. And just to let you know that in Quebec, uh, we are going to be negotiating our contract again very soon, starting in January. Our contract ends in 2023, March of 2023. And one of our demands is to improve the workload of elementary teachers. So this kind of goes against what we're trying to do. Um, Of course, here in Quebec, we just had an election. So we haven't heard from the Minister of Education very much in the last well, since the since the fall, let's put it that way. So we're looking forward to having a conversation with the Minister of Education, uh, who we don't know who it is yet because they haven't announced it yet, um, to say, whoa, 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 let's 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 hold back on this. Make sure that we have people in place to help teachers do this because it's going to be an impossible task. We appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Very interesting uh, program. Uh, this has been uh, Heidi Yetman, President of the Quebec Provincial Association of Teachers, talking about teeth. Teeth and uh, toothbrushing, and uh, and the supervision of of uh, parents or of teachers involved with this with elementary kids. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. All right. What do you think? Seven ten ten. Text us. Is this a good idea? I dated myself a bit with the health hustle. That was a good idea. Got people moving. You got a little. You got one of these. Uh, if you moved fast enough, you, the teacher gave you a, a button. I remember the health, I never got it. I never got the health hustle button. I still hold that back, you know, I hold a grudge about that from uh, grade three or something. I never got the health hustle button. Um, 
So is this something that teachers should just do? Um, or, or are we just loading up parental responsibilities into the classroom because of other problems, both parents working, um, just, you know, they, they don't have the time to focus on the basics like this. In Look, in class, we learn about good health. We learn about nutrition. We learn about uh, physical health. Um, what's wrong with learning about how to brush your teeth when you're an elementary child? I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but Quebec is proposing a every single day supervised teeth brushing. Uh, two minutes a pop, two kids at a time, only in the sink. So they don't have five kids brushing their teeth all together. That's, and I mean it, I did like, so two minutes a time, a class of 26, that's, that's a half an hour to brush your teeth, the whole class. What, when you're done, what does everybody else do? They go and have quiet time? No, right? Especially with one person in the class. So let us know what you think about this idea, 7, 10, 10, good idea or not. Also, when we come back, the list of people testifying at the inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act during the convoy is out. It's an interesting list. I'm Graham Richardson. Stay with us. Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Getting lots of texts on this Quebec idea, the toothbrushing campaign, which is already underway every day in elementary class and it's being rolled out across the province. It started in 2017, stalled by the pandemic, where teachers supervise and teach good uh, brushing and flossing and dental hygiene. Um, it's a mixed bag of text. I think a bunch of kids brushing their teeth in the bathroom, they're going to spread more disease than anything else. That's from Drew. I think, Drew, that's why they say just two to the sink, so they're trying to control that. This is another way just to grow government. This is from St. Catharines. Uh, we don't need the government teaching our kids how to brush their teeth. We don't need the school system. Just teach. When I went to elementary school, there were many poor families. The school gave us vitamins every morning, had a doctor come in every six months for eyes. We got free glasses, food and hats, mittens, even clothes for winter coats. It's a good idea on teeth brushing. That's Diane from Ottawa. Thanks for that. Parents should not have to take um, take their kids. Government should do it as government should do all things for all people. I think uh, that text is being uh, a bit facetious. I used to have a dental health nurse conduct brush-ins one to two times a year. That's all that's needed. But again, to see the union so focused on can't rather than suggest alternatives. Okay, but but it, to the point the teachers union was making and are making, I mean, once or twice a year, this is every single day in a class of 26 with no help, right? So that it's a significant ask. Um, I want to go to a, go to the lines. Kelly in Belleville is on the line. Um, Kelly is a dental assistant. Um, and what do you think of this idea, Kelly, of in-class, everyday uh, teeth-brushing lessons for young kids? Yes, thank you for taking my call. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, I had to pull off at the side of the road. Um, of course, I advocate um, educating children. The, the younger, the better. 
I do think teachers have enough to do in the classroom. We already have dental nurses that come into the classroom to teach the children and hopefully they'll follow up at home. I have experienced over my career, my 39-year career, I'm always amazed at the lack of education that the parents have in in brushing um, their children's teeth. So, of course, the, the more the merrier. I just don't know how they're going to um, fit this into already what's being learned in the classroom or lack thereof. This is my it. concern, and yeah. a lot of people in dentistry, and a lot of people might not know this, but there's three pa- factors in tooth decay. It's not only toothbrushing, which is at the bottom of the list. It's um, the types of food we eat and how often we eat. And the biggest factor that we're concerned about is how often the children are eating. They have breakfast. They have a morning snack at school. They have a, a lunch meal. They have an afternoon uh, snack. They come home from school and have a snack. They have their dinner. And then perhaps before bed, that's seven, seven meals a day. It takes four to five hours for your saliva to remineralize a tooth that's been attacked by acid. And that's the biggest concern that we should be focusing on. Um, toothbrushing, of course, but um, I... We're I, eating too frequently. I, We're eating too frequently well, and, and, and having to clean teeth. Uh, you just can't keep up with that your, frequency Your saliva of food. will do the job. Your mm-hmm. saliva will do the job. Toothbrush, um, you know, the frictional action of a toothbrush certainly helps, but um, that's the message that we should be sending our schools. Too much eating. Hunger is actually a good thing. Hunger is your body telling you it's time to eat. Children do not have to be eating and grazing all day long, every two to three hours. Kelly, appreciate your perspective. Thanks okay, for calling thank in. Thank you so much. And thank okay. you for pulling over to call Take in. Care. That's commitment. Thank yeah. you. Uh, so there's Kelly's perspective. Fair enough. And we are getting quite a few with this tone. Ridiculous. What will be next? Show them how to bathe? Well, there are hygiene classes. You know, they're, they're, They actually do show them how to bathe. That, that, that is a life skill that maybe some of them are missing uh, for various reasons. And, uh, you know, like, again, the point here the unions are making, and, and I want to d- differentiate. I, I've had this too, where, a, where a, a dental hygienist or a nurse comes in to talk about teeth once or twice a year. The Quebec program is every day for two minutes a day, supervised by the teacher, um, the entire class. That's a completely different thing than what many of us have experienced Previously, we've got another call. Uh, this one from Quebec. Uh, Jeff's on the line uh, in Quebec. Thanks for calling in, Jeff. Yeah, no what do you problem. think about uh, this idea? So I didn't realize that it was going to be uh, every day, but I remember I went to grade school back in the 70s, and uh, every fall uh, of every new year, we would have a dental hygienist come in and they would make us chew on that little pink tablet. And, and you know, you look in the mirror and, and see that, uh, you know, you do have plaque on your teeth and they would give us a free toothbrush and we would brush our teeth. And so, I mean, I don't see anything wrong with that. If there is a problem with, with uh, uh, tooth decay in a, in, a, in, in a given area, why not? Yeah. You know, and the person said, well, you're going to teach him to bathe. Well, when I was in grade five and we had sex ed, part of the sex ed was, hey, you know, your body's changing that. And you know what? You might have some odors. So you might want to think about that. Yeah, so, I... you know what? If it's not being taught at home, what's the harm? Yeah, I remember that, too. But you, you do concede every single day is different than what we experience. With... Yeah, every yeah, single yeah. day. I mean, uh, you know, once a month, maybe just to make sure everybody's on top of the same thing. But to supervise, then, then that's overstepping. I think that's basically... Uh, uh, 
saying that uh, nothing's being done at home and uh, the, that that they need the teachers. Well, you know what? The teachers could be teaching other things at that at that point. Yeah. Thanks so much for the call. Appreciate that. Uh, that's Jeff in Quebec. Uh, one more text here I wanted to read. This is coming in from Hamilton. I think it was the nail on the head when you mentioned about educating the parents. I feel like sometimes the job of a parent has been pushed onto teachers. In my elementary school of 1,100 students, let me reread that again. In my elementary school of 1,100 students, it would be impossible to get all of them to brush their teeth every day when there isn't a sink in every classroom. Like, that's, that's a legitimate question about the policy, right? So, okay, maybe there's a sink in five of the classrooms. Um, you're, you're going to implement this school-wide. You're going to have kids on the move. So that, that's, like, my example was the class of 26. You've got to do two at a time. They've got to go in shifts. You're, you're well into 45 minutes for that class to brush its teeth, uh, to brush their teeth. So it, it, is that the kind of thing that's, that's actually going to work? I said we were going to talk about the, um, the, uh, the committee looking into the invo- invocation of the Emergencies Act and clearing of the convoy from the streets of Ottawa. Uh, there is a list out. We're going to talk about it tomorrow because I did promise we'd talk about it. Uh, but not only is Tamara Litch and Chris Barber on the list, so is the Prime Minister, so is the Mayor of Ottawa, so is the Police Chief, the head of the RCMP. It's 65 people. And this, remember, is the oversight element of the legislation that has never been used before. This piece of legislation replaced the War Measures Act, and it's never been invoked until Trudeau did it um, here in Ottawa as the streets uh, were not being cleared, and finally they were. And the question that the, the committee is looking at is, was it justified to do this? It's going to be very, very interesting because you'll notice that police say they need X number of resources. They needed X number of resources to clear the streets, but they're not going to tell government what to do. And they were quick to say, we never asked for this act to be invoked because that's the role of government. On the other side, government said, we're never going to tell police what to do. And then all of a sudden, 1,800 police officers show up. So it, it is a interesting debate that is, of course, very, very charged in a political atmosphere that remains quite divided on this issue. Thanks for being here. I'm Graham Richardson. We'll talk tomorrow.